Welcome to the Peckway Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. At Peckway, our mission is to transform lives by connecting people with God and with each other. It's our hope that this message will give you hope and encourage you to take the next step in your journey with Christ. For more information about our services and weekly ministries, visit us at peckwaychurch.com. Thank you for being here this morning. Let's worship our God. There is nothing impossible for him. Just one word. You calm the storm that surrounds me. Just one word, the darkness has to retreat. Just one touch, I feel the presence of heaven. Just one touch, my eyes were open to see. My heart can't help but believe. There's nothing that I God can do. There's not a mountain that he can move. Oh, praise the name that makes a way. There's nothing that our God can't do. Just one word, you heal what's broken inside me. Just one word, and you revive every sight this morning as we sing this is our prayer today together today we're gonna believe I will believe for greater things there's no power like the power of Jesus let faith arise let all agree there's no power like the power of Jesus sing it out I will believe for greater things there's no power There's not a mountain that he can move. 
seat. So good to see you here this morning. Welcome to Peckway Church. If this is your first time here with us today, thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us. And uh, inside of your bulletin is a gray connection card. I'm going to invite all of us to take that out. And you can begin filling that out even now as I'm speaking. But if you are a first time guest, uh, you can also just take your mobile phone and text the word hello to 717-872-5679. Seven nine, and uh, once you do that, you'll get a quick text right back, and uh, fill out that, and then we'll be able to connect with one another. And uh, if you have any questions about Peckway Church, we can answer those for you. We can uh, help you find resources and have anything that you might need to see if Peckway Church is a good fit for you. And for those of us who attend each week, thank you so much. So great to see you here again. And again, with that gray card, you can do those same kind of things. On the back of the card, you can see there's places for decisions, any ministries you might be interested in. You can write your prayer request in the box there in the back uh, as well. Uh, and you can also do that through the online digital uh, card as well. If you have any prayer requests, we love partnering together with you, praying about the things that God is doing in your hearts and lives or things maybe you're praying about God's will or any of those kind of things. We're here to help with those and pray along with you and ask God for those things. Also inside of your bulletin, you'll see there's something about Fall Fest coming up, and uh, you can look at that as well, but we're excited. That's something that we're offering to the community here, and uh, we'll talk a little bit later about that in our service. You know, as we've been uh, going through this sermon series and uh, talking about the things that God is doing, uh, we're on our last message today, and that message uh, is going to deal with, you know, how do we want to be remembered. We all worry about that, right? Is our life going to make a difference? We've talked about our purpose. We've talked about God's will and all of those kind of things. But, you know, are people going to remember us for uh, a great job that we did or how much money we made or the kind of house we drove, uh, kind of house we lived in, the kind of car that we drove? Um, you know, and if we worry about those things and those are the only things we're living for, those are temporal things. And so God's called us for a purpose. And uh, he's, he's given us gifts and talents to be able to do those things. And so it's far better uh, to, to do those things and have the, that purpose and that meaning of life that we have a kingdom mind and a kingdom purpose. And that when we get to heaven and we've talked to other people about Jesus and they've accepted him, those are our rewards. We're going to see those people in heaven. And so I encourage you to listen to today's message uh, as we are going to finish up a life well lived and, uh, and see what God's word has to say about uh, doing that, how we can have this great life 
and living out that purpose. And one of those ways that we do that is sharing our story, our testimony. And we're going to sing about that this morning. So I'm going to invite you to stand once again with me.
Today, we proclaim that you are good. Thank you, Jesus. Suffering, 
for your goodness, for your kindness, for your mercy, for your unfailing love. Jesus, I pray, uh, Lord, that as we, uh, Lord, look at what you have to say today, Father, how we can live this life of greatness. God, when you've called us for a purpose and you created us that way and how you've shaped us and molded us, to be your people, Father, and you've given us a mission and a calling to do that. And so as we look at your word today, would our hearts be quickened to you, and may we truly be able to say that you are good, God, and we pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Billy, my batteries were not in place. Anyhow, good morning. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, worship team. And I, and I mean that sincerely. I mean, what a wonderful song. What an incredible statement. God is so good. But I don't know about you, and that is a powerful statement, but my heart and mind this morning was arrested by that phrase, if this life brings suffering. Remember what the cross has done for us, what it's provided us. Not both now, and that's really what arrested my attention, both now and forever. I mean, we, we, I think we do a good job, and we pastors, and I think we Christians do a pretty good job in suffering of thinking about what the Calvary has purchased for us and done for us in the life to come, right? Presence of God. 
But I, I think, I wonder, I know in my life sometimes, I don't know if I do such a good job of holding on to what it's accomplished in the here and now, especially in those times of suffering. Well, and you say, well, what are those things? I'm going to encourage you to spend some time thinking about that, but let me prime the pump for you this morning. God's presence, forgiveness of sin, His assurance that He can work mightily in us and through us to accomplish more than we could ever hope or imagine, the fact that he can work in all things for our goods. I mean, the things that God does in this life. Holding on to that idea that Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's part of what the cross accomplishes for us now. So my question is, even in the suffering, are we simply enduring life in that moment? Or are we enjoying life, thriving in life because of what the cross has accomplished? You might not be there, and I don't say that in any way to go, Jerry, if that's where I've got to be today, I'm not there. I get that. And you don't have to be there. I say what I say to simply say that's where we can be. It's more than a hope. It's a reality. The cross of Christ is truly accomplished more than we could ever ask or imagine. And I hope that's a reality for you. And I would just say, and Scott says it every week, if you're just struggling there and need someone to pray with you about that, then certainly reach out to those around you. Reach out to your friends. Certainly reach out to us as staff and let us pray with you. But today, that, that's an aside, and that's free, and I've already burned two minutes doing that, and I want to be mindful of your time. But folks, how I want to wrap up this series today is with a story, my favorite story from business and leadership, and it's a story most of us know, but it so makes my point today, I'm going to share it anyhow. And it, it's a story about Steve Jobs and John Scully. And how at the very beginning of Jobs' little startup company that we know today as Apple Computer, he wanted the very best CEO possible to run the company. He knew that's what he needed to give it the, the best possible chance of success. So he decided who he wanted to go after was a man by the name of John Scully, who at that time was the CEO of Pepsi. And so what Jobs did is he decided to get on a plane in San Francisco, California and to fly to New York City and see if he couldn't convince Scully to come and head up this new start, this startup company to lead this endeavor. And somehow, someway, again, if you know anything about Stephen Jobs, you know he was just resourceful that way. Somehow, someway, he managed to get an appointment with Scully. And not only did he get an appointment, but he was able to actually make his pitch to John Scully. Now, I need to say this to you, and I think you realize that, but to appreciate the significance of the story, we need to understand the idea of Stephen Jobs coming from this small startup unknown company and approaching the CEO of Pepsi to come and be the CEO of his little company was laughable. I mean, think about it. That, let me just give you a for instance. Imagine it's something like that's going on and we decide, one of us decides, you decide to get on a plane today and fly to LA and somehow get an appointment with LeBron James because you wanted to ask LeBron to leave the Lakers and come join your league basketball team. I mean, that's how crazy that kind of request was. That's kind of the stretch that Jobs was making by asking Scully to come and lead his little company. But somehow, somewhere, he got in and he made his pitch. And after listening to it, Scully said, well, let me just tell you. For you to get me to come, it would take a million-dollar salary. And then it would take a million-dollar bonus. And then after that, we would need to talk about a million-dollar severance package. Jobs, you know, realized it was going to cost him quite a bit to get Scully, but he never imagined that much. But he says he swallowed hard and said, you know what, you've got it. We'll work it out. 
And Scully stopped him and said, I don't think you understand. That's just what it would cost to get me to come as a consultant to your little company. You don't really think I'm going to leave this multinational billion dollar company to come and lead your little startup company, do you? And Jobs realized he had nothing to lose, so he said, let me ask you a question. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water? Or do you want a shot at changing the world? Well, because of that question, Scully actually resigned as CEO of Pepsi and went to work with Jobs. And under his leadership, we all know, I mean, we're living in the reality today. Many of us are carrying the result of it in our pockets today, even now, that they literally, Apple Computer became a world leader in computer technology. And as a result, they literally did, I would suggest, change our world in many, many ways. But here's the reason I share that story, folks. Because, and the reason I know many of you have heard it, but here's the reason I share it. Because I believe that story really gets at not only our greatest fear in life, many of our greatest fears in life, but also our greatest hope. You see, I don't believe our greatest fear in life is death. For some of us it is. But you know what? I think many of us here today, including myself, our greatest fear in life is, my greatest fear in life, is not living a life of significance. Not living a life that leaves a legacy after I'm gone. Living a life that doesn't make really one hill of beings of a difference. That when it was all said and done, I realized more was said than done. That's my greatest fear in life, and I think it is for many of you. And that leads to our greatest hope in life, our greatest desire in life. And what's that? That our life counts. That we do something to live on beyond ourselves that makes a difference for others besides just ourselves. And as we, I share that because, folks, as we come to this end of the series, as Scott wonderfully alluded to, we're going to look at this amazing truth from God's Word. Not that we can be saved, that is an amazing truth, but this other amazing truth that God says He can use us to change the world. And do it in a way that is far more profound and more significant than inventing or marketing iPods and iPhones, iPads and iTunes. God says, I can use you. He can use me to change the world in an incredibly profound way. But listen, we need to understand, if that's going to happen, for that to happen, God has to lead us through a process of preparation. There's work that God has to do your life and mine to get us ready. And we see what that process is clearly, so crystal clear in the life of the prophet Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. If you're not familiar navigating the Old Testament, that's fine. I encourage you just to follow along on the outline. But Isaiah chapter 6, it might be labeled in your Bible, Isaiah's commission. In other words, it is the time where he starts and gets his calling and mission from God. And let me read it to you. Here's how it reads from the NIV. In the year the king Uzziah died... I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of the voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. 
Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Folks, what I want you to see this morning in that passage, what I want us to look at this morning in this passage, is that before God was able to use Isaiah in an incredible way, and if you don't know how that, really what that incredible way and how he used him, you need to read the book of Isaiah. But let me just tell you this morning and assure you, God used Isaiah in an incredible, incredible way to his glory. But before he did that, he took Isaiah through a process. And I say that because if we want God to use us, maybe certainly more often than not, it's not going to be in the measure of the scale that God used Isaiah. But if we want God in our own corner of the earth to use us in a way that lasts beyond our days, whether they're 80, 90, or 100 years, God has to take us through the same process. And so we ought to be asking ourselves, is that true? Then what in the world is the process? Because if we want to be used by God, we want to get usable. We want to put ourselves in a place where God can use us. So let's this morning look at that process, shall we? Can we do that together? And here's the first step in the process. We have to have a life-altering encounter with God. Now, I don't know if that's long. I'll give it to you again. We must have a life-altering encounter with God. Take a look at what we read in verses 1 through 4. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. High and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two wings they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of the voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Here's the reason I read that to you. Here's what we need to understand, folks. It was in the midst of a national personal crisis that Isaiah saw God. It is in that moment that his eyes were opened. A better way to say that is his eyes were opened to the reality of God. Now, when I say his eyes were opened to the reality of God, I am not suggesting to you, and I'm not saying that in that moment he began to believe in God because the Bible makes it clear, the book of Isaiah makes it clear, he already did that. Now, what I'm talking about when I say he, his eyes were open to the reality of God for the first time in his life, Isaiah began to appreciate and truly understand the character and the nature of God. In other words, he began to understand who God really was. More than an idea, more than a concept, more than a deity, he began to understand the very nature and character and person of God. And what I want to say, having said that, as I say, to appreciate that, we need to understand the historical context. You see, that's why Isaiah gave us that historical footnote. He said, in the year the king Uzziah died. You say, what's that about? Well, let me give you a little Old Testament history. Let me give you a benefit of way too much money spent at seminary. Here's what this is about. King Uzziah reigned in Israel. Really, the accurate would be Judah, the southern kingdom. The kingdom had been divided at this time. But he reigned as king of Judah for 52 years. And those 52 years, when you really study the history of Israel, there's only one king who led Israel at that time ever into greater prosperity, better progress than Uzziah, and that was Solomon himself. 
So we need to understand when the context, historical context that Isaiah is writing about is a time of tremendous prosperity or the back end of a time of, of tremendous prosperity, tremendous progress. And as a result of that, what we need to understand is that the people of Israel and even Isaiah himself began to put their hopes, their dreams, and their sense of security in King Uzziah. And he says, but now he's gone, he's dead. And what we're not told in the text is something else significant, very significant was going on in history, and that is the mighty Assyrian Empire had its army moving ever closer, ever closer, ever closer to Jerusalem and Judea itself. They were set on conquest. And so we need to understand in this time, in this historical context, everyone in Israel, including Isaiah, was feeling despair. They were anxious. They were afraid. They were uncertain. Much like the times we live in today, isn't it? And here's the reason I say that, folks. Have you noticed in your life, like I noticed in this text, that often it's in times of insecurity, it's often in times of crisis, that it's much easier for God to make himself real to us, that it's much easier for us to sense the work and the presence and the power of God? I don't know if you have, but I have. And again, I think that's why Isaiah intentionally puts that historical footnote. He simply says, in the year the king Uzziah died. It isn't a throwaway statement. You see, Isaiah wants you and me to understand that it was only after he and the people of Israel lost their false sense of security, their false sense of hope, that they finally found their true sense of security and their true source of hope, God himself. It was only in the crisis that they were driven back to the foundations of the faith, back to who God truly was and who he is. And folks, the reality is, Isaiah is saying, until we lost that false security, until we lost that false hope, I didn't really understand who God was. But in the context of that spirit, he said, suddenly I begin to went from simply being God, someone I believed in, and someone I worshiped, someone I served, to God being the very center of my life, the defining center of my life, the point of which everything else in my life was oriented. Isaiah said it took that crisis to bring me to that realization, to open my eyes to the reality of God. And here's the reason I share that. Many of you are ahead of me, folks. If we want God to use us in a great way, in, in, in kind to way God used Isaiah to impact the people we love and we care about, perhaps our nation, that God has to take us through the same process. You and I have to come to the same realization. We have to move from simply God being someone we study about and talk about and, and even believe in and perhaps serve to a God who we are convinced of his holiness, his presence, his power, and his purity in our life. God has to be more than simply some concept of our idea, someone we believe in, but he has to become the defining center of our life. You say, Jerry, why is that the first step? Why is that the first step that God takes Isaiah through? Why is the first step God takes us through in this process of preparation? I'll, t I'll tell you my take on that, my experience, my observation on that. Here's why it's the first step, because folks, if our idea and understanding of God is underdeveloped, our relationship and our service to God would be underdeveloped. It's just that simple. You, you see, folks, we need, because of that reason, we need to have that same sort of encounter with God that Isaiah had. Meaning we need to come to know God for his presence, his power, and his purity. We need to know that he is pure, he is holy, he is holy other, 
that he needs to be, we need to know that he is the foundation of our hope and our security more than anything else. And that leads us to the second step in the process that God took Isaiah through and it takes us through, and that's this, that after we see God for who he is, holy, pure, powerful, and we're going to see gracious and compassionate, then we need to see ourselves for who we are. Which, if we're honest, is just the converse, the opposite of what I just said, isn't it? Or if you want the theological, biblical expression, we want to see God as holy, we want to see ourselves as unholy. We want to see ourselves as men and women who truly do not live up to God's expectations, God's standards, and God's calling. In other words, we need to have an honest assessment of our own nature and our own character, just as we have to have, to begin with, an honest assessment of God's nature and God's character. Take a look at what we read in verse 5 and 7. See why I say what I say. Isaiah, in seeing God in the temple, says, Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tong from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Folks, let me just bring that down to where you and I live. What we need to take from this, what we need to see from this, what we need to understand about this process in your life and mine of preparation to be used by God is here's what we need to understand. When you and I come to genuinely see God for who He is, present, powerful, pure, you know and I know what it does to us, don't you? It humbles us, doesn't it? It brings us to that place where we're willing to finally admit, you know what, I don't fly as high as I like to pretend, and I'm not nearly as good as I like people to believe about me. We come to an honest assessment of who we really are, what we really are, and what we really aren't. In other words, we come to recognize the fact in biblical terms that we recognize that we're a sinner. God's God, and as we'd say in Kentucky when I pastored there, God's God and we ain't. We recognize the otherness of God. Because, folks, what happens in God's holy presence, we are confronted with the reality of just how much, how far short our character and our conduct falls short of God's character and conduct. Does that make sense? We see ourselves for who we really are in the presence of God. And so here's what I could promise you. When you see someone who is or was used greatly by God, you could be sure of the fact that that woman, that man, dealt with the second step in the process. In other words, they dealt with the sin issue in their life. Take a look at what Isaiah said, or rather David says this, who may climb the mountain of the Lord? In other words, come into the temple. Who may stand in his holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure. They will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. Here's the principle David's getting at. Here's the principle. Spiritual power flows from inner purity. Spiritual power flows from inner purity. So net it out, folks. Little purity, little power. A mediocre amount of purity, a mediocre amount of power. A life full of purity, a life full of spiritual power. Because Davis wants, David wants us to understand, Isaiah wants us to understand, God wants us to understand that he will not use men and women with impure hands and impure hearts. He will not use a dirty vessel. Now, having said that, I want to say this, folks. God will use 
extroverted people and introverted people. God will use educated people and highly uneducated people. God will, will use quick-thinking people, and he will use slow-thinking people. God will use people with all kinds of spiritual gifts and abilities and passions and experiences and personalities, but there's one kind of person God will not use in a great way, and that is an impure person, a man or woman with unclean hands and unclean hearts. And the reality is, folks, that purity in your life and mine does not come from good intentions or great resolve or self-discipline. It's a work that God has to do in our hearts and lives. That's why we read this from Isaiah, verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew with a live coal in his hands, which he had taken from the tongs or with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, notice in that text, folks, nowhere, nowhere is it even suggested, let alone explicitly said, that Isaiah did anything to bring about his own purity, short of acknowledging his sinfulness, his uncleanliness. Nothing in that text says Isaiah did anything to bring about his own cleansing in his life. That, in fact, that's why he says in verse 5, woe is me, I'm ruined. That makes clear to us that he knew his impurity disqualifying for use from God. It actually, it actually said, Isaiah is saying, that expression, woe is me, I'm ruined. He says, I'm deserving of death. I'm going to die. And yet here's the thing. Read on in the text and what happened. God didn't judge him. God didn't condemn him. No, God instead in compassion, in mercy, in grace, removed Isaiah's guilt and atoned for his sin. Those are God's words, not mine. He says, your guilt is removed and your sins atoned for. And folks, we need to talk about that. Because the reality is what many of us mistakenly believe about God and sin in our lives is that God simply wants to judge it and condemn it. But that's not at all what we learn from Isaiah chapter 6. What we see instead is God is not, when he, when he identifies sin in our life, when we recognize sin in our life, God is not, his goal is not to judge it and condemn it. His goal is to set us free from it and the guilt that it produces in our life so that we can enjoy a relationship with him. And I say that for this reason, folks. So when you sense, perhaps you discover by being in God's presence, perhaps through a friend who speaks the truth in love, that you discover sin in your life, you discover impurity in your life, and we all do. And you feel like God's putting his finger on it. You feel like God's identifying it. Then rather than thinking that God is doing that to condemn you and judge you, instead, would you understand what God is doing? See it rather than God's judgment or condemnation. Would you see it as God's invitation? God's invitation to freedom and fr fellowship and friendship. He's not looking to condemn us. He's looking to save us. He's looking to purify us and redeem us. So that's the second step in the process, folks. After we have an honest view of God, an authentic view of God. We have an authentic encounter with God and we finally understand who God really is, not who we think He is, not who we hope He is, but who He truly is. And then we begin to understand and finally see ourselves for who we truly are, not who society tells us we are, who we hope we are, who we think we are. We see ourselves for who God says we are and who we know ourselves to truly be. Then we come to the third step in the process and that is we get a clear view of our mission. We get a clear view of God's mission for our life. Take a look at what Isaiah said. He said, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am. 
send me. Folks, after you and I gain a clear sense of God's holiness and we gain a clear sense of our sinfulness, our natural, logical response to God's missional question of who shall I send should be naturally, here I am, send me. And let me just be clear, folks, that response, when it truly is the response that God is seeking, that truly the response that God is trying to produce in our lives, will not be motivated, will not flow from a spirit of self-righteousness. It will not flow from an attitude that I'm better than all these people, that I've got it together and they don't. No, it will flow instead from a realization that simply we recognize that God needs to do for others the very thing He needed to do for us and continues to do for us. And so that response is one of love and compassion because we recognize that when we see God's holiness and our sinfulness, that just like ourselves, the people around us can never live without God's help a life pleasing to Him. They will never live the life that God intended. That's why Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips because he recognized that the issues and struggles in his life were the same issues and struggles the men and women around him were facing. That they were struggling just as he did with moral and spiritual impurity and so they needed the same solution that God provided him with. His purifying, transforming touch. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and, and make a generalization. And, and I'm, I, this, it's going to get lighter, folks. But I'm going to make, you know, most of us have watched the movie Gladiator, right? And I think, now this is just in my home, I watched it for the fight scenes. I think Lara watched it for Russell Crowe. But here's the reason I, I bring it up, folks. Not, not to have fun at my wife's expense. And she, she knew I, she knows me. But anyhow, I bring it up for this reason. In that movie, I think very graphically it depicted the brutality and the bloodiness and the just inhumanity of the gladiatorial games that took place in the Roman Colosseum. I mean, just in a very profound way, we, we just recognized how twisted all that was. But one of the things the movie did not depict, and I wish it did, was how those gladiatorial games came to an end. Are some of you familiar with the story? Let me tell it to you. It's a true story, folks. It was in the fourth century, and a little Asiatic monk by the name of Telemachus sensed that God was calling him and leading him to go to Rome. He had no idea why. In the fact, he, he, he admitted that the idea of going to this great, big, huge city scared him to death. But he knew God was calling him to go, and so he went. When he arrived in the city, he saw this huge crowd moving toward the biggest building he'd ever seen in his life. It was the Colosseum. And he said, I, I didn't know what they were going to see or what I would see when I go. I don't know why they were going. I don't know why I went, but I fell in line and began to follow them into the Colosseum. When he sat down, he, he, it, high in the, in the stands, he said he saw the gladiators, these men walk in, and salute the emperor and say, we who are about to die salute you. And he said, in that moment, I realized what was taking place. That these men and women in the tens of thousands had gathered to cheer on one man murdering another man 
for the sake of entertainment. And he said, when that horror of that hit me, I jumped up and shouted, in the name of Christ, stop. But no one paid attention. And Telemachus ran down the stone steps of the Colosseum, jumped onto the sand floor of the arena, and began to run between the gladiators, saying and shouting, trying to get them to stop in the name of Christ, stop. And the whole time he did that, the, the crowd cheered him on, and they shouted because they thought he was part of the show. They thought this was part of the entertainment. And so at one point, one of the gladiators playfully just took his shield and batted Telemachus to the ground. And Telemachus just jumped straight back up and once again began running between the warriors, between the gladiators, shattering the name of Christ. Stop. But it was no longer funny to the crowd because it was interrupting the contest. It was stopping their amusement. And so they went from laughing and cheering to shouting, running through, running through. And one of the gladiators obliged and took his sword and thrust it into Lemachus's chest. And the little monk collapsed to the ground. And while he was laying there in the puddle of his own blood, dying, he said to them one last time, in the name of Christ, stop. Well, folks, then historians tell us a strange thing happened. As everyone stared at the dead, lifeless body of this little monk laying on the arena floor, the Colosseum fell deathly quiet. And in the silence of that moment, someone way up in the top tiers of the Colosseum, they tell us, got up and walked out. And then someone else in another part of the Colosseum got up and walked out. And then another, and then another, and finally, everyone, person after person, got up silently and left the Colosseum until the arena itself was entirely empty except for the emperor. And then finally the emperor got up and silently walked out, folks. And that was the last time gladiatorial contest ever took place in the Colosseum for the sake of people's amusement. But folks, it all happened because a little unknown Asiatic monk was willing and chose to do something great with his life in the name of Christ. And folks, God can do the same thing through us. Perhaps not in a dramatic or historically noteworthy way, but folks, God could do the same thing through us. For our little corner of the world, for the people in our lives, for the people that we know that are being murdered and mistreated and, and, and made light of, whatever it is, God could do the same thing through us, but folks, it will not happen until you and I are first willing to get a genuine, authentic view of God for who He really is. In His holiness, in His purity, in His power, in His grace. And folks, it's not going to happen until then you and I come to an authentic view and understanding of ourselves. That as good as we are, we are still fallen men and women in need of God's grace and forgiveness and power in our lives. And folks, it will not happen until we finally have a view of the mission God has for us that we are to go and share with others 
the, the, the true condition of humanity, God's love, and God's solution for the human condition. But here's what I know, folks. When those three truths seep into the very center of our soul, God can use us like he used little Telemachus to do something great in the world. Folks, I want to encourage you. Work through that process. Continue to work through that process because God's desire, the longing in your heart to live a life of significance, to go from simply making history and following history to truly shaping history to the glory of God is within our power through God working through our lives. But we have to make the choice to make a difference. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Heavenly Father, today my prayer is what it's been all week. That more than us simply being challenged by Isaiah's encounter with you, that we would be changed by it. But we know that we cannot bring about that change on our own. By our resolve, by our determination, by our, our, our efforts, Father, only you can do that for us. And so right now I ask you, that you would pour out your transforming power into our lives, that you would touch us even as you've touched Isaiah with your cleansing presence in our lives. Through Isaiah's vision, Father, you have given us a new vision of your holiness and our spiritual neediness and fallenness. And in light of that, I pray that today in our hearts you would stir us individually and corporately with the compassion and the humility and the gratitude required to let us say to you, as Isaiah said, send me. Because, Father, more than anything else, we want to not just simply hear your call, we want to follow it so that you can do something truly great with our lives that lives on beyond us and makes a difference for others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you want to make a difference? I think we all can answer that and say, yes, we do. You know, as we have gone through this series and we've talked about how God's created us and called us and shaped us for a purpose, you know, it kind of comes down to this now. What will we do with the things that we've listened to? Um, will we just come and continue being uh, who we've been? Or will we let God change us as a result of these things? Maybe um, you realize this morning, this morning that uh, you haven't had a life-altering view of Jesus. Maybe uh, you haven't accepted him into your heart and life. And uh, if you want to do that, you can check on the card today. On the back of the gray card online, there's also going to be a digital card. But that you can make that decision today. You can commit your life to Jesus you can recommit your life to Jesus. You can grow in your faith or explore your faith. So maybe you had that honest view of yourself. And uh, so that's one thing that we could do as a result of today. But another thing that we can do is have that clear view of our mission. And in light of that, I want to challenge you. We talked about the, uh, the uh, fall festival uh, earlier in the service today, and I told you I'd revisit that. And that is um, because... 
you can make a difference in someone's life. And uh, I know I've challenged you also to volunteer, but I want to reframe that a little bit. You're not just filling a spot. I don't want you to come just to be warm and willing, but I want you to see it as how you're making a difference in someone's life. Jesus reminds us that if we give a cup of cold water in his name, that we're ministering to people. If we talk to somebody and share things with them and, and just those life experiences, we're doing that in Jesus' name. And we're making that difference. I'm going to read you a, a little story here about influence. Um, sociology, sociologists tell us that the most introverted individual will influence 10,000 people in their lifetime. And we all influence people in all sorts of ways, um, from what we have for lunch, from the movies that we watch, um, to uh, you know, uh, just the things that we do uh, in life, the, the activities that we do, right? And so our lives um, influence other people. Think of the people who've influenced you, maybe your teachers, obviously your parents and your friends and family. So just as they've influenced people, you too, you also do. And so maybe you're thinking, well, I'm just, you know, I'm not famous, right? I don't know a lot of people, but there's an African proverb that puts it like this. If you think you're too small to make a difference, you haven't spent the night with a mosquito, right? We've all had that experience where the mosquito makes a difference in an annoying way, right? But the principle is still the same. One person can stop injustice. One person's kindness can save a life. One person can be the voice for truth. So each person matters. So how can you maximize your influence and use that influence for good? So you could do that if we think of that and how we can touch people's hearts and lives through Fall Fest. So would you take a look at that card today? I think there's ways uh, also in the bulletin that you can be a part of that. So I want to encourage you to step out and do that today. Um, before we go, also, I want to give us the opportunity to worship through our offering. We can give our tithes and offerings to advance the gospel. A couple of ways you can do that. You can do it in person. There's envelopes in the back of the room. You can do it digitally through the website, uh, also through the Peckway app, and you can see those things there as well. But uh, when we do, when we give, we're worshiping God and thanking him for the good things he's done in our hearts and lives. And lastly, the picnic. I want to invite you all to come, even if you haven't RSVP'd, but we are going to move that into the gym because of the weather today. So um, that will be this evening. We're going to have tables set up and chairs. And so uh, you might not want to bring your, your chair if you don't want to. You're welcome to. Uh, but please still bring that cold dish and the dessert to share. But please, this is my personal invitation to you to come out and be a part of that. We'll still have some fun things in the gym to do and to fellowship as well. And if any guys want to help us move some tables and chairs, I won't turn you away. I'll be over in the gym in just a moment. Thank you so much for your attention today, and I, I've enjoyed it, and I look forward to doing it again with you next week. Hope to see you later. Thanks.